All right, well, turn in your Bibles, please, to the letter of James, and in particular, James chapter 3. I've called this message, The Power of the Tongue. See, for those of you that are visiting or new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series on James, and we're spending about 18 weeks in the book of James. It is a wonderful book, and already as we hit chapter 3, we've learned a lot of incredible things. So James is a wonderful pastor. He grew up around Jesus, who was his big brother, and so he heard his older brother Jesus say an awful lot of things throughout his life. He also grew up as a Jew, so he grew up with the book of Proverbs effectively in his hand. And since James has become a Christian and become a teacher and a preacher, he's saying some wonderfully gifted things. And he desired to try and help this dispersion. These churches that have been chucked out of Jerusalem, in effect, because of the persecution, that are now dispersed all over everywhere. And yet James loves them. He still thinks of them like a pastor. And so he writes to them about various different issues, not least their trials and sufferings. And here in chapter 3, from verses 1 through 12, he starts to talk to them about the tongue. Here's what he says, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, we do realize that through James, you are speaking. These are your words, and they're your words to your people, your children, all of us in this room who consider ourselves to be brothers and sisters. Lord, you're addressing us here in this moment. And so, Lord, would we hear your voice through mine? Holy Spirit, would you do the work amongst us? Would we be encouraged, refreshed, convicted, challenged, whatever work you need to do? Lord, have your way amongst us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, some years ago, now Time Magazine um, did an article back in the day when I actually read Time Magazine, which was many years ago. 
they conducted an experiment where they tried to work out how many words each and every person uses on average each and every day. So they asked 400 women and 400 men to have microphones attached to them for four long weeks. Throughout the whole day, they had to wear the microphone, 800 people in total. They then had a team of collators that put it all together, and they worked out that on average, every man and every woman per day says some 25,000 words. Each and every day of our lives, on average, we utter 25,000 words. 25 little things come out of our mouth each and every day. And on average then, one would assume we hear around 25,000 words a day. So every day there are around 50,000 words floating around our minds and our brains and our bodies, 25,000 uttered by us, 25,000 uttered by others. And given the sheer number of words that we're talking about there, for so many people, words, I think, just become words. They're ordinary parts of life. They are unimportant. They're just part of what we do. They're just words. I mean, they happen all day, so we don't even think about them. They just become words. And yet in the Bible, you discover that none of these are just words. Because in the Bible, our every word matters. See, James has already said in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's saying, listen, if you're claiming to be a Christian, you, you're saying that I bow the knee to Christ and I want to follow him, but your tongue isn't under control. It's just spouting out all sorts of things. Your religion, your Christianity is worthless. And he says it because he knows the Proverbs. In Proverbs 18, verse 21, we read, For death and life are in the power of the tongue. From our mouths, these 25,000 words a day, we have the power to bring life, to encourage, to build up or aid, but we also have the power to tear down, to destroy, to inflame. And Jesus himself then, James' older brother, in Matthew 12, verse 36, says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. 25,000 words a day. Well, I tell you, on the day of judgment, we'll give an account for them. That's why James, in chapter 2, verse 12, says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He knows this is going to happen. We're destined to die once. After that, we face judgment. And these things that come flying out of our mouths all the time at a great rate that we don't think are any big deal, James says they are a big deal. They matter. Our every word matters. Listen, according to the Bible, our words matter. In fact, according to the Bible, our every word matters. Paul Tripp, in his wonderful book, War of Words, which I'd strongly recommend to anybody who wants to learn more about the tongue and speech, this is what he says. Talk seems so normal, so ordinary, so unimportant, so harmless. Yet there are a few things we do that are more important. Words are powerful, 
important and significant. It was meant to be that way. So when we speak, it must be with the realization that God has given our words significance. He's ordained them to be important. Therefore, words were significant at creation and at the fall, and they are significant in redemption. For God has given words value. So we must do all we can to assign to words the importance that Scripture gives them. Now, wonderful. Listen, for God has given words value. He rates them. They're important. So we must do all we can to assign to words the importance that Scripture gives them. Well, this morning, with that in mind, I'm eager for us to do all we can to assign to words the importance that God gives them. And I'm so grateful then to James in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Because this text is all about words. It's all about words. What comes out of our mouth, these 25,000 words. And he wants to assign to them importance like God gives them. And what we discover as James starts to talk about the power of the tongue, what we discover for us throughout all of Scripture is that our words matter. Our every word matters. When he gets into this topic through what would appear to be a slightly obscure door, namely the door of teachers. This is what he says in verse 1. Let's get our eyes in the text. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In the NIV it says, not many of you should presume to become teachers. I think that's so helpful because that's the tone of what he's saying here. Not many of you should presume to become teachers. The reason why he's saying it is because since the dispersion, everybody's putting their hand up to teach. Everybody's just trying to get attention. Hey, I think I should be a teacher. I think I should give it a go because he's aware if I could teach, people are going to really respect me and and really it's just going to be good for me. And so I want to teach, I want to teach. And he's saying, listen, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Not many of you should presume to become teachers. Why? Well, because for those who teach, you will be judged more strictly. And I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for the church. But I don't want that for you either. See, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, we read exactly the same, that we should obey and submit to our leaders. We should have a disposition to follow our leaders and teachers. Why? Well, ultimately, because they're called and gifted by God to look after our souls. They're there to care for us through life. And secondarily, they're going to give an account to the Lord on that last day for how they've done it. And what James is saying, listen, don't everybody then be volunteering and being quick to stand up there and preach because you need to understand if you're going to do that, you need to be called to do that. You need to be set apart to do that. You need to know how to preach faithfully because when you stand there on that last day and you give an account for all your words, those ones will really, really matter to God. So don't just go spouting off. James is whole point then is you shouldn't presume to become teachers. Those who teach will be judged more strictly. And his concern throughout is, listen, teaching is going to be a challenge for us all because teaching invariably involves words. It involves the tongue. And oh my, let me talk to you about the tongue because the tongue has some distinct challenges with it. Well, later on, James is going to be talking and addressing then those wannabe teachers once again. But in this passage... For the remainder of it, he wants to address us all in the tongue. 
words, not just teachers, but for us all, so that we may understand the power of the tongue and the reality that our words matter. So I have four points this morning, or four points all taken from the text, four points which James just flat out gives us about the power of the tongue as he helps us to see that our words matter. Here then is the first. Number one, the intrinsic power of the tongue. The intrinsic power of the tongue. Verses 2 through to 5a. This is what he says. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, for if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See, James, Pastor James, as much as anybody who's ever lived, really does understand the power of the tongue, the intrinsic power of the tongue. And right here, then, he seeks to give illuminating expression to the reality of this power, through two carefully crafted analogies, namely a horse bit and a ship's rudder. And so verse 3, we have a horse. I mean, a horse, if you've ever been up close to one, when you stop and think about it, is an incredibly powerful animal, isn't it? I went out with a girl once. Didn't last long. She had a horse. She made me sit on the horse. Within about 10 minutes, I nearly wet myself. We never saw each other again. I mean, these horses are just massive. And as soon as you get up there, you're like, whoa, where are the stabilizers? I mean, you just feel so high up. And you're also aware this thing could take off at a moment's notice, and I am dead. Horses are powerful beasts. You know, the strongest that anybody can do is an Olympic heavyweight weightlifter. The strongest they're ever going to be is to lift 550 pounds above their head. I mean, that's a massive amount, half a ton. But if you put 550 pounds on a horse, you can put it on its back, and it barely even changes its breathing pattern, and it walks off with it. Such is the power of horses. They're incredibly strong and large beasts. Likewise, if you were to take those weights off the horse and you let it just run without a rider and you smack it on the back and set it off, it will run nearly a quarter of a mile in less than 25 seconds. Horses are very quick and very powerful. They are in and of themselves half a ton of raw power and speed. And yet you put a bridle in its mouth a small piece of leather attached to a rein in its mouth, and a 50-pound jockey can completely control that horse and send it wherever it wants it to go. Because of that little bridle. Half a ton of raw power, but a little bridle in its mouth and controls everything, and the horse completely responds to what the rider is asking it to do. What James is saying is, listen, your tongue is like that. It's powerful. Maybe small, but it is an incredibly powerful part of your body. Likewise with a ship, he says in verse 4. See, in the ancient world, they had large ships. Paul, in Acts chapter 27, was being carried to Rome on a 276-passenger ship. They weren't just all these tiny things. They were huge and vast, even in this day as well, with huge, great sails on them. And what James is helping us see is, listen, even that ship, even though it's gone out to sea and it's going to be battered by the wind, it's going to be battered by the waves, it is ultimately controlled and directed by one very small part of the ship, namely the rudder. And it's still the same today. If we go down to Sydney Harbour 
And you see the QE2 or one of the big carnival cruises that is so big that it even sticks out of the harbour. You look at the size of the rudder that's on the back. In comparison to that great boat, it's nothing. And yet that small rudder completely controls everywhere that that boat goes. Such is its power. See, what James wants us to understand then is just like the horse is bit, just like the ship is rudder, our tongue is powerful. And so he says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So it does. It is a small member, it is a powerful member. That small, movable structure attached to the floor of our mouths is a powerful, powerful thing. The old adage, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Rubbish. They are incredibly powerful. Like the bridle in a horse's mouth, like the rudder on a ship, words boast incredible power. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way wonderfully. He says, The human tongue is physically small, but what tremendous effects it can boast of. This mere two-ounce slab of muscular membrane, as Charles Swindle has called it, can legitimately boast of its disproportionate power to determine human destiny. The tongues of Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill bear eloquent testimony to the dark and bright side of the tongue's power. The Fuhrer on the one side of the channel harangued a vast multitude with his hypnotic cadences, On the other side, the Prime Minister's brilliant, measured utterances pulled a faltering nation together for its finest hour. And yet we need not look to the drama of the nations to see the truth of James's words. Listen. Our own lives are evidence enough. But we must never doubt the power of the tiny tongue and never underestimate it. My friends, our tongue is powerful. James wants us to understand it. He wants us to understand that that small piece of muscle in your mouth is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Just like the bridle in a horse's mouth, just like the rudder of a ship, it contains within it great power. But that's not all. There's not only intrinsic power within it. Number two, there's also destructive power. Number two, the destructive power of the tongue. Let's look at the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. See, James then is using the analogy this time of a great forest fire. And if you've ever seen a great forest fire, which I'm sure many of you have, you will know the incredible power and destruction that comes through any such fires. See, the great Chicago fire of 1871, within just a few days within that fire, three and a half square miles of the city of Chicago were destroyed and took with it 17,000 buildings and 250 lives. But that started at 9 p.m. on Sunday the 8th of October, when poor Mrs. O'Leary's cow, as she was milking it, put its foot out to hit the lantern, and the lantern with a tiny flame within it fell over, hit straw, the barn went up, and it carried on along the line, and before you know it, Chicago is burning to the ground. 
She's milking a cow. Lantern falls over, 250 people dead, three and a half miles ruined, 17,000 buildings by just a small flame. You know, that, that fire is really famous. Many people have heard of the Great Chicago Fire, even Christians, often because of Horatio Spafford. Because Horatio Spafford, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul, his story started in the Great Chicago Fire when he lost all his wealth, which is why he sent his wife and children on to England. The Great Chicago Fire ruined lives and property, but that actually wasn't the biggest fire in the United States that year. Although not many people know it. There was a far greater, a greater fire in northwest Wisconsin in 1871 as well. And it is still known as the greatest fire in U.S. history. It actually caused so much damage that it became barely incalculable. It was a raging fire which ran for over a month. Over two billion square yards of precious timber were destroyed, which was totally their livelihood of that entire state. And 1,200 people lost their lives in that fire. And it all started somewhere in the wood when either somebody was starting an engine or two tools were coming together. It's never been quite clear, but what is clear is it started somehow through a spark, which ignited the sawdust, which ignited the trees, which wiped it all out. It was just a spark, but it changed everything. And we see that in Australia all the time, don't we, with bushfires. We see great burning hectares and hectares burning down and then they suddenly work out what's happened it's because somebody's thrown a cigarette butt into the forest or a spark has taken place or a match has been lit or whatever it be but something small becomes massive and what James is trying to help us see is listen our tongues contain this kind of destructive power within them as well your tongue my tongue, can do great, great damage left unchecked. He says there in verse 6, our tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. You know that world there? It is actually the world cosmos. He's basically saying, your tongue, that little thing in your mouth, it can cause a cosmos of fire. Great damage can be done because it is a cosmos of unrighteousness. It can cause great damage to others. Great damage to people in your families, great damage to your spouse, great damage to your church. Entire churches have been burnt to the ground, not because of a match, but usually because of somebody's tongue that quickly then brings with it division and suddenly the whole church is ablaze and you wonder how you got there and it's usually somewhere along the line a spark from somebody's unhelpful gossip or slander or malice or anger and suddenly the whole thing is ablaze. Our tongue is powerful. Our tongue can do great damage to others and our tongues, James helps us see, it can do great damage to ourselves as well. He says there, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Our tongue, when it's wagging away and being unhelpful, it's not just damaging others. James is saying, no, this is going to damage you as well. Your whole life will become stained and damaged by it. And what James wants to help us to see then is, listen, our tongues then, when they are truly set on fire, when there is bitterness and anger and gossip, 
and slander and malice coming from our mouths, our tongues then are set on fire, verse 6c, they are set on fire by hell itself. My friends, this is so utterly sobering, is it not? He wants to help us see the power of our tongue, but the amount of damage that it can also do when it's being used inappropriately, when it's being used in ways of anger and bitterness and slander and gossip, in ways Paul said, this should not even be named among you. James is saying, listen, when this happens, it can, it can spread like wildfire. And when you're being used like that, you need to understand you're being used by the devil himself. See, I think poor old Peter exhibits this, you know, exhibit A, doesn't he? In the Bible, he's chatting to Jesus. Jesus has just told him, or just said to him, hey, Peter, when I get to Jerusalem, I am going to die. I'm going to be whipped and beaten, and I am going to die. So Peter pulls him to one side and says, listen, you won't be, it'll be okay. I'll look after you, don't worry about it. At which point Jesus looks him at the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. I mean, if I'm Peter at that moment, my eyes are like saucers and you think, what, what? But what Jesus is saying to him is, listen, in this moment, your words are hell to me. You are being used by Satan towards me. This is unhelpful. This is not the will of the Father. And my friends, as a church, we need to understand when we are spouting off bitterness and anger and malice and slander, it's like we are connected into the fires of hell directly at that point. And what Satan is doing is standing on the corner of your life as you are bad-mouthing people and slandering people and getting angry with people. He's standing on the corner of your life doing this. This will wreck him. It'll destroy the church. It'll destroy your family. It will destroy your marriage. Oh, and actually it will destroy you as well. That's what James is trying to help us see. Our words, they're powerful. And our words can do great, great damage. And when they are unchecked and when they are sinful, it is like we are mainlining into the fires of hell in that moment and flames are coming from our mouths, hurting people and indeed hurting ourselves as well because we won't leave that unstained. If that wasn't bad enough, James then tells us about the uncontrollable power of the tongue. Number three, the uncontrollable power of the tongue in verses 7 and 8. It says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. See, just when you think it couldn't get much worse, James now wants to tell us, and oh, guess what? That tongue of yours, it's untamable in the natural. That's a huge statement. I mean, I remember many years ago when our kids were little, we went to Tenerife, um, not for very long. We were actually in Gran Canaria, but we got on a boat, went to Tenerife. It was a three-hour trip. It was that day that I realized I get shocking seasickness. Didn't know that until that day. That day I had six hours of it because I had to come back as well. It was awful. One of the worst days of my life. But in between, when we got to Tenerife, we went to SeaWorld in Tenerife. 
And that was a really amazing day. Never been to SeaWorld before, never seen a lot of the creatures that were there. And whatever you think about SeaWorld and those different things, that killer whale thing is pretty amazing. You know, when you're all gathered in the stadium and then this whale that just looks like it's just massive and they give it a whistle and suddenly it comes leaping out the water, goes over a skipping rope and lands on the other side. You're just like... Whoa! I mean, it's just unbelievable. You think, how do they get it to do that? This thing is absolutely massive. And yet in a moment, it's performing tricks. Why? Because it can be tamed. I remember likewise as a kid, my mum and dad would take me to the circus. It happened once a year in Spalding. It's about the only thing that happened in Spalding. And I think they got a wimpy once. They actually got a McDonald's when I left. That was really a sad day for me because I'd already left. Um, but once a year, the circus came to town and and spent some time there. And I remember this one circus coming, and they had lions and tigers. So I'm like, we have got to go. Because what is that about? I've never seen a lion or a tiger in real life. And so we're sitting down, we're waiting for it to start. It starts, and these cages are all up. And there's these cages running in from the outside of the tent. And suddenly these lions come running through, and you're like, because you're like six years old. Ah! Oh, they're going to come, they're going to come. And then you suddenly realize, of course they're not going to come. Because there's a cage, so you, you calm down a little bit. And, the, and the, the circus conductor is just getting them to sit on the different places you want them to. These things are roaring. They're huge. You're aware they could kill him in a moment. And as you get older and you keep going back, you think, oh, I hope something goes wrong today. It's sick. But there's a part of you that just thinks, oh, let the day be today. But at the time, it never happened. Why? Because that conductor tamed them. Lions can be tamed. Tigers can be tamed. Great killer whales can be tamed. But what James wants us to understand, the tongue cannot be tamed. It is a far more formidable opponent in the natural. No human being can tame the tongue. Why? Well, it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Think out of the top ten animals that can kill you. Australia has the top nine. But what I help you see is actually at the top of the list is your tongue. That can do the most damage. That can cause the most pain. That can ultimately kill and wreck the most people. And James wants to help us see, you know what, it, it can't be tamed. You can't in the natural tame it. Listen, as I was studying this text this week, it was about this point that I became somewhat despondent. <laughs> like overwhelmed, like we are ruined. We're just stuffed. It's powerful. It can destroy people. I can't even tame it. James wants you to feel that. So hang in there. James wants you to feel those things. He wants you to understand the power that is in your mouth. And he wants you to feel helpless. But he's not going to give you the answer just yet. Because he also wants to tell you one more thing about the power of the tongue. Number four the hypocritical power of the tongue. The hypocritical power of the tongue, verses 9 through 12. Read with me verses 9 and 10. He says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers... These things ought not to be so. See, it would seem that James has heard of a particularly contradictory phenomena in the dispersion churches. 
And that contradictory phenomena as brothers, as a family of God is this. On the one hand, they're coming and they're gathering like this and they are singing praises to the Lord. They're welcoming on the door. Oh, bless you, brother. It's good to see you. They're using the often used phrase, blessed is he. They didn't regularly shout out in worship services this time words like hallelujah. No, they would shout out, blessed is he. When they're excited about things, when they're at the end of different phrases, everybody would erupt with, blessed is he. Blessed is he. And James is aware that when you're gathering, that's happening. You are crying out to the Lord. You're bringing praises to the Lord. But then as soon as you leave, you're cursing the very same people. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. At least one of them. Slandering them. Gossiping about them. Angry about them. Not speaking well of them. Wanting to address them with malice. And it's all coming out of our mouths. And what James is saying, listen, for you as Christians, this should not be so. It shouldn't be. That with the same mouth and the same tongue, those two very different things are coming out. He then explains it some more with one closing illustration in verse 11. He says, Does a spring pour, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? What kind of fig tree, my brothers? Bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Brothers, And sisters, this should not be so. Why? Well, because your brothers and your sisters, we're family, having been adopted by the King of kings and Lord of lords. God has saved us by amazing grace. He's forgiven us and redeemed us and adopted us into his family. He's assured us that heaven is our home. And he's brought us together for care for one another and love one another and bear one another's burdens and confess our sins to one another and help one another. So how can we gather and sing praises to the Lord and then leave and curse the very same people? As Christians, this should not be so. It's, it's as ridiculous as a fig tree bearing olives or a grapevine producing figs. And the truth is, if we live like that, with both fresh water and salt water coming out of our mouths, blessing coming out of our mouths, but cursing coming out of our mouths, what is it that people will taste from us? Well, if you put fresh water together in in a cup with salt water, I want to assure you the thing that you will taste is salt water. What James is saying, that's what it will be like with your life. If you're saying, I love Jesus... But then your family are also hearing gossip and slander and anger and bitterness. What they will taste is gossip and slander and anger and bitterness. They will taste the salt water. They won't even pay attention to the fresh water because all they will taste is salt water. And it shouldn't be so. It should not even be named among us. My friends, the tongue, according to Pastor James, is powerful, isn't it? It has intrinsic power within it. Just like the bridle in a horse or the rudder in a boat. It's so small, yet it's powerful. And it can, in and of itself, bring great destruction. And in the natural, to a human being, it can't be tamed. This thing is wild. 
dripping in deadly poison and yet let then unchecked. For us as Christians, we will be minimally hypocrites. Bringing forth blessing and cursing with the same mouth and it should not be so. So what then do we do with this now by way of conclusion? We looked at our faces in the mirror. You want to think this is bad. I've been looking at my face all week. You look at your face in the mirror as you study this, as you spend time with this, and you realize, well, sadly, he's addressing me. So what do we do with it now? What are we meant to do with it now, knowing that there are 25,000 words coming out of our mouths every day? And please note, when I say words, I don't just mean what's coming out of your mouth. I mean what's coming out of your fingers as well. Texts, Facebook comments, emails, Twitter. They're all words. I don't think we're going to stand on that last day and God says, okay, I'm not worried about anything you've written, just what came out of your mouth. If it's come from your heart, and your tongue, then we're talking about it. So how then do we respond to this? How are we meant to respond to this reality? Having seen our faces in the mirror, what do we do now, knowing that it will be in our doing that we'll be blessed? Well, I think there's three things that we can do by way of concluding application that I think James hints at in places, that James screams at in others, And then indeed the whole Bible speaks to us about as Christians. What then do we do with this now? Well, number one, we never move on from nor forget the reality that our words really do matter. We never move on from nor forget the reality that our words really do matter. Bruce Milne once said, right living always begins with right thinking. And that's always stuck with me. Right living always begins with right thinking. It's thinking that begins right living. And what James is trying to help us do here is understand right thinking about our words and right thinking about our tongues. 25,000 words coming out of our mouths each and every day. Sometimes spoken, sometimes written. But 25,000 of those little bad boys... And what James wants to help us see is every single one of them matters. They're important because they can bring life, but they can bring death. They can bring joy and encouragement and help and blessing. Listen, when the gospel is proclaimed, it can even bring life and salvation. But with those very same tongues, when they are set on fire in a bad way, they can bring great destruction more than you'd ever imagine. Just like the great fires of the forest. They can destroy in a way that you may never have even asked or imagined. But such is the spark of the tongue and such is the damage that comes. And our tongues, they're powerful. Incredibly powerful. Intrinsically powerful. Destructively powerful. Hypocritically powerful. Well, listen, my friends, knowing then that right living always begins with right thinking. Number one, we never move on from them nor forget the reality that our words really do matter. When we're about to address our spouse in an issue, we need to understand every word matters. When we're about to engage with a child because they are in trouble, they have yet again done something that gets on your pip. 
before you open your mouth, be aware, these words matter. When it's a situation in church life and we're tempted by whatever it would be, we need to understand what happens now in this moment. Our words matter. They can bring life, but they can bring destruction. Our words matter. And having allowed then by the grace of God that truth to be burnt into our hearts, number two by way of application, we then run to the Lord and cry out to him for mercy. We confess to him, letting him know the reality of our hearts and the realisation of our mouths. And listen, when we confess our sins, God isn't surprised because he heard every word. Through the Holy Spirit, he's always with you, hearing every word out of your mouth. You know, in Isaiah, we see a man that was known by others as a paragon of virtue. He was known by his people as the most righteous man that ever lived. Isaiah, in and of himself, was seemingly, at least to everybody else, a holy man. A wonderful man who loved the Lord. And yet in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah stands before God in his holiness, when we have that great vision of the throne room, Isaiah's response as a paragon of virtue is, Woe is me! A man of unclean lips! I mean, woe is me. He's calling down the temple on himself in that moment. He's saying, listen, spare me. I, I cannot handle being in front of your holiness, your moral purity anymore because I stink. My lips are terrible before you. That was indeed a cry of doom. It was a prophecy of woe. He's literally calling destruction on himself. But in doing so, it's, always, it's also a cry of confession, isn't it? He's admitting, I've got nothing. And my lips, oh my gosh, if I was only alive one day and I spoke, I would be doomed. How many of us would want a microphone attached to us for the next month to then be reviewed by your life group leaders and pastors? Not me. Isaiah was a paragon of virtue and yet stood before the Lord, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. It's a cry of woe, but it's also a confession. So what does God do? instructs an angel to go to the altar and to take a coal out and to fly over to Isaiah and allow that red-hot coal to touch his lips. And then what does he say? He says, through this, you are cleansed. He sends the angel with a coal to cleanse him, a coal which ultimately would point to the finished work of Jesus Christ in his place. He has confessed, woe is me, I stink with my mouth. Then Isaiah, by the grace of God and for my glory, I will sort that for you. I'm going to cleanse your lips through a coal. And then later on down the track, I'm going to send my son to ultimately cleanse you once and for all so that you may be completely forgiven of your sin. Isn't that beautiful? My friends, if Isaiah needed that mercy, then how much more do we And yet 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you get it? To cleanse us. If we confess our sins, if we, like Isaiah, say, Lord, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, then he's faithful to cleanse us. 
cleanse us through the finished work of Jesus Christ so that we may be completely clean and washed clean. Is that not good news? It is staggering news. And that's the gospel. That's the power of the cross. And so having, having ensured that we never move on from nor forget the reality that our words really do matter, and having ensured that we run to the Lord and cry out to him for mercy, is then the final thing we do. Number three, I believe we regularly and persistently cry out to the Lord for ongoing grace. We regularly and persistently cry out to the Lord for ongoing grace. See, here's the giveaway. In verse 8, it is a loaded sentence. But no human being can tame the tongue. No human being It's a reality that he paints explicitly in chapter 4, but it is loaded even here. It has implications to it because here's what he's saying. No human being can tame the tongue. You in and of yourself will not be able to do this. It is a wild animal. You have got more chance of helping Shamu jump into a boat than you have of taming your tongue. It is not going to happen. No human being can do this. But God, in all his grace and power, who now resides in you as brothers and sisters, but God, who is full of grace and mercy, who now lives in you and makes his home in you through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, can tame your tongue. You haven't got a hope. But as you cry out to him for mercy, miracles happen. The miracle of sanctification. He will help you control and tame your tongue. And if that actually happens, then, oh my gosh, hit your knees and help everybody see this must be his work. Because in and of myself, I've got no hope. But God, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, can Help me and enable me to tame my tongue. And so, Lord, oh my Lord, would you help me? Because I'm a brother and a sister. Things are different now. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have the gift of the Spirit in my life. I have the gift of justification and regeneration and now sanctification as he's changing me from one degree of glory to another. And listen, if you're like me, it is slow, slow going. My wife, listen, my wife on that last day with the Lord is going to receive, there will be numerous well dones, but one of the well dones will be this, well, well done, you did well with him. You know, that's what's going to happen. It's just going to be like, there's just going to be special crowns that my wife managed to put up with me. Because my sanctification is slow. But I want to commit to regularly and persistently crying out to the Lord for ongoing grace because I cannot tame my tongue by myself. But he can. He can help me. He can aid me so that I may then be able to act the miracle. See, in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, here's what we read. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because you've been forgiven of your sin. You have. Salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's all his work so we can approach the throne of grace. And while we're there, here's what we need to be asking. With regard to the 25,000 words that come out of our mouths, I think probably each and every day of our lives we need to be saying, Lord, help me with this today. I want to bring life and not death. I want to bring hope and not destruction. And Lord, I cannot tame this by myself. So Lord, would you help me? And listen, Sovereign Grace, if you apply that this week, if you approach the throne of grace and ask the Lord to help you, minimally, if you look around that throne, you're going to see me there. Because I'm going to be there. I need his mercy. And I need his grace. And I think most likely so do you. So would we be a people who run to him? And in him would we find everything we need? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit here as your people, we are... Well, we cannot help but align ourselves with Isaiah. For woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Lord, as a church, would you forgive us for the words we say that do not bring life? Lord, I thank you that your son's death is sufficient to wash them all clean in a moment so that we may emerge and sing to you as white as snow. Oh, Lord, it's scandalous grace. But it's true. And Lord, would you help us then to rise and go forth and follow thee, dependent on you, that we may be able to tame our tongues, so that our tongues would be used for your glory, that they would bring life. And Lord, if that happens, which we trust it will, it will be a miracle. And would we all return to you then and say, this is clearly your work in my life. And would you then receive all the glory? Lord, we need you. So would we find all we need in you? For your glory, Lord. Amen.